Let's uh, move into our time of study. We've come as far as uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. So we're now in the last chapter uh, of this uh, second epistle of Peter. Um, Peter's focused on many things. Uh, but one of the key things that has been uh, the heart of what Peter's written is the return of the Lord. Uh, and we see that come out very much in this chapter. He starts at the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 3 by saying, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Spurgeon had uh, once made the comment that, you know, it's a really good thing to stir up pure minds. It's not good to stir up impure minds, uh, but stirring up pure minds is a really good thing to be able to do. And we need to do that with each other. Uh, as pastor, I want to try and do that with you to stir up your minds. Uh, but notice what Peter says here. This is stir up pure minds by way of remembrance. It's getting us to think about all that God has done, all that God has promised for us. It's, it's just casting our mind back and seeing how God has worked. And it can be in our own lives, but it can also be all those things that God has revealed through Scripture. <laughs> what we do find is that uh, Peter really wants to make us think about what we have been saved from. Now, that's one of the, the key things that Paul will address in many of his letters, the idea that we have been brought out of this uh, world of iniquity, of darkness, of sin, and we've been brought into this marvellous light, this gospel of truth that we now have. And it's just to stop and to think. It's so easy to get into our lives, uh, the, the usual mundane, run-of-the-mill, kind of everyday uh, scenario that we're in, and we forget about the greatness of what God has accomplished for us, where we've actually come from. Sometimes when we are uh, in a conversation with an unbeliever, uh, we're reminded on those occasions just what God has done for us as we look at someone else and see their predicament and their uh, sometimes lack of hope, lack of trust, lack of peace. All of those things should be overflowing in our lives. Uh, and Peter also wants to remind us of the position that we have been given. Now let me read you again from what Peter says in his first letter. Uh, he says that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And that's the position that we've been given. This is what uh, Peter is trying to uh, encourage us to understand. And then Peter goes on, and we've seen this uh, very much in the second epistle, to look at the certainty of our faith. Um, Peter's given us the eyewitness account of the transfiguration. He was there, he saw it. But he says, you know, we've got something even more incredible, even more certain than that, and that's the, the word of prophecy in God's word. Those things that God has revealed before time, that we might know the reality, the truth of these things. It isn't just a, a wishful thinking, we hope it's right. We know this is true, we can prove this is true, we can demonstrate it. But now, as we go on, Peter's going to exhort us to remember that Jesus is coming back. We need to live in the light of that, in the expectation of that. And Peter's going to address this in a moment, but saying that that should change the way that we're living our lives. I think I may have used this example a number of times, but when I was younger... Uh, my sister and I, uh, we got to a certain age and when mum and dad would uh, go away, sometimes for work reasons or whatever, they'd both go away for a few days together uh, and they'd leave us at home. Uh, we were old enough and responsible enough, so it seemed, would seem, um, to be able to look after ourselves. 
Um, and, and typically we'd get to the day that we knew they were coming back or uh, the night before and we'd recognise that the house was a bit of a mess, that we hadn't done the washing up for three or four days, you know, and, uh, you yeah, know, so, so all of a sudden, you know, there's this like real frenzied kind of attempt to try and tidy the house, to clean it, to repair the things I'd broken or whatever, you know, get the French polishers in to repair the table, you know, that kind of idea. But, you know, the idea was that we knew they were coming back and we wanted to be ready. But we didn't want to be in a position where we were unprepared. And, of course, we didn't want them to be disappointed with us when they returned. Well, that's a simple analogy from a worldly perspective. But how much more so when it comes to Jesus? You know, we need to make sure that our lives are without censor. We don't need, or there shouldn't be anything in our life that we're ashamed of. When Jesus returns, we should be ready. Now, probably all of us at times, we've been in situations where we've probably been glad the Lord hadn't come back right at that moment. But as we grow in grace, we should get to that stage where the Lord can come back at any time and we're glad we're looking forward to it. So we need to make sure these things are not in our lives that would be disappointing to him. Of course, the reality is the Holy Spirit is with us all the time anyway. The Holy Spirit sees everything we see. Everything we look at, the Holy Spirit will look at because he is within us. Every place we go, the Holy Spirit goes. Every conversation we have, the Holy Spirit is party to that. And we need to have this understanding that we are to grieve not the Spirit of God. So our lives should be different. Because of all these things that Peter's reminding us, and Peter's also going to remind us that this material world is going to be destroyed. The, the world is, you know, of the mindset that everything is going to carry on as it always has been. And we're, you know, we, we hear occasionally of NASA spotting a, an asteroid that's on collision course with Earth and it's going to hit us in something like 2027 or, you know, some long, long way away from here. And we think, well, it's, it's not really going to cause us a problem. You know, uh, we don't need to worry about that now. Or, you know, it may be centuries away. So, but the reality is, that the Bible says that things are not going to carry on as they are. There is going to come a day, the Lord will return. This world is going to be radically changed. We've got ahead of that time the, the tribulation that is detailed so much in scripture, all these things coming upon the earth. And so we need to understand that it's not a, a, a problem necessarily to have material things. Of course, it is part of our lives, the way we are, the way the world is. You know, in fact, God endorses um, private ownership of things back in the book of Genesis. But if any of those things become uh, such that they, they hold us, then there's an issue there. We need to hold very loosely to the things of this world and hold very tightly to the things of God. Verse 2 carries on, that you may be mindful. I think that's interesting. The word t- the world is using this f- term at the moment, uh, mindfulness. But the world's idea is that we empty our mind. Well, that's never a good thing. The mind was never designed to be emptied. And, of course, if we empty our mind, if we go through these various so-called relaxation techniques and so on, and, of course, yoga is a big part of that. And, sadly, unbelievably, many Christians get into that thinking it's just a harmless form of exercise. Uh, and I'm sure you're aware that these things are being foisted upon our children in schools. Uh, we've been very aware of things. And fortunately, um, you know, I think most of the schools that are represented amongst the fellowship, um, the, the parents have spoken to the school. The school will not include our children, those kind of things. But the, the world is going down this road of trying to empty your mind and so on. Well, Peter's saying, no, no, don't empty your mind. Fill your mind. And he says, be mindful of the words which were spoken. He puts emphasis on the word of God. This is what we need to be filling our minds with. That was spoken before by the holy prophets. Okay, so speaking of the Old Testament and of the commandment of us, the apostles. 
So the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of it is important. As mentioned before, that there are churches today that have this mindset that they are a New Testament church, that the Old Testament really doesn't apply to us anymore. Uh, it's nonsense. The whole of the Word of God is there. The Old Testament, the things that were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we, through the uh, comfort and the patience of the Scriptures, might have hope. Everything is there. It's all breathed by God. And it's so important that we will be complete, not lacking anything, we're told in Scripture. So, notice what we're told, though. Um, the, the commandment of the apostles was of, or literally from, is what it means. It's from the Lord and Saviour. There's a declaration of the deity of Jesus, by the way, uh, in that statement from Peter. That Jesus is the Lord and he's the Saviour. He's one and the same. Um, you know, but the idea is that the apostles were not speaking of their own uh, volition, as it were, their own mind, their own heart, their own desires. They were speaking what God had given them to say. So the the commandment of us, the apostles, was from the Lord and Savior. Uh, it's been estimated that there are eight times more prophecies concerning the second coming than the first coming, the first advent. Which is incredible, because we know so many of the prophecies surrounding Jesus' first coming. Um, but there are so many prophecies that have to do with the second coming. And Peter is going to pick up and major on this. And we need to be mindful of those things. We need to have them in the forefront of our mind at all times. You know, again, the coming of the Messiah to rule and reign is one of the key themes of the Old Testament. So much so that the disciples expected Jesus to establish his kingdom there and then. In fact, this is why Peter, uh, on the night that Jesus was crucified and betrayed, is why Peter's willing to draw the sword and to try and take on the entire uh, Roman army and all those that had come to arrest Jesus, the temple guards and everything else. You know, Peter's just real gung-ho, just pulling his sword and let, let's go for it because he thinks this is the moment that Jesus is going to overthrow the might of Rome and become the king of the Jews has been prophesied, the king of Israel. Remember the promise that had been given to Mary, Mary by Gabriel, that Jesus was to sit on the throne of his father David. That was the expectation of the Messiah. And so even the disciples were waiting for this. And it's when we get to the beginning of the book of Acts, we read there this question uh, that is uh, asked by the disciples. They say to Jesus, let me just read to you uh, from the beginning of the book of Acts. Um, they say, uh, when they therefore were come together, they asked him, the disciples asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, okay, Lord, we, we kind of get that you had to, to die, you, you, you've, you've risen from the dead, but are, are you now going to set up your kingdom and your throne? And Jesus simply says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Notice Jesus doesn't say, guys, you've got it all wrong. It's going to be a spiritual kingdom. No, no. Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. It's very clear in scripture that the kingdom that will be established on earth, and Daniel speaks about this uh, in detail, and other prophetic books in the Old Testament, Isaiah and so on, uh, that Jesus really will establish his throne when he returns to this earth. As I say, it's one of the key themes of the Old Testament. David Guzik says this comment. Makes this comment. He says, Peter knew the importance of reminding his readers of the scriptural message, both received from the Old Testament, spoken before, and contemporary to his own day and of the commandments of us. Peter clearly believed that the words of scripture were important and the words themselves and not merely the meaning behind the words. As you grow in grace, as you have a deeper love of scripture, you recognize that every word 
every detail, every yod, every tittle, every the, the yod is like a, is a, it's one of the smallest letters is the smallest letter in the Hebrew language, and it's almost like a uh, an apostrophe. Um, and uh, the titular are like the uh, little decorative hooks uh, that they have on, on Hebrew letters. You know, the smallest details are there by deliberate supernatural design. Every name, every place name in Scripture is there because God intended it to be so, and it's there for a purpose. <clears throat> Spurgeon makes this comment. He says, Peter believed in the inspiration of the very words of Scripture. He was not one of those precious advanced thinkers who would, if they could, tear the very soul out of the book and leave us nothing at all. But he wrote that you may be mindful of the words, the very words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Oh, says one, but words do not signify. It is the inward sense that is really important. Exactly so. That is just what the fool said about eggshells. He said that they did not signify. It was only the inward life germ of the chick within that was important. So he broke all the shells and thereby destroyed the life. If the words could be taken from us, the sense itself would be gone. Very simple, clear uh, comment by Spurgeon. Well, then Peter goes on and says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Spurgeon made this comment. He said, every time a blasphemer opens his mouth to deny the truth of revelation, he will help to confirm in uh, confirm us in our conviction of the very truth which he denies. The Holy Ghost told us by the pen of Peter that it would be so. And now we see how truly he wrote. You see, we live in a day and age where there are many scoffers. There are many that would reject the Bible, reject anything to do with God. They laugh at us and they think we're foolish. Well, you know, when they do that, we should thank them because they're simply proving that what Scripture said is true. Because Peter said there would come scoffers that would do exactly that. When they do it, it's simply proving that the Bible is true. Notice, though, the things that they say here. They will walk after their own lusts. That implies there'll be no accountability. Now, of course, when we think of lust, often we, we tend to think of it in a kind of a physical, sexual sense. Um, that, that's often the way that we, we think of the, the term of the word. But lust can apply to all sorts of things. It could be a lust for power, a lust for position, uh, a lust, lust for supremacy. You know, and there are many in the world today, particularly in academia, that have that lust for uh, respect and to, to be uh, revered and acknowledged as a great authority and so on. They, they are equally lusts. They're walking after their own lusts, these people, these scoffers. And notice that they will question and they will deny the second coming. But the basis they have for that is that their argument is going to be on the perception, their perception, that everything stays the same. In other words, they have this impression, this opinion, that uh, ap uh, um, uh, apocalyptic events do not occur. Okay, so th their, their idea, their mindset is that, well, it hasn't happened in the past and it won't happen in the future. So therefore, any notion of Jesus returning is impossible because they live in this material, scientific-based, fact-based world, so they think. Um, where those things never have taken place, and so they never will take place. And so they'll laugh and they'll scoff at the idea that Jesus is going to physically come back to this earth. But notice what Peter then says. He said, for this they are willingly, or they are willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. Notice what Peter says. 
that the heavens were created because God spoke them into existence. The world is spending a fortune on trying to understand the origins of the universe and so on. The Bible tells us that they're not going to find it through a telescope because the origins of the universe were the word of God. God spoke everything into existence. You know, scientists don't tend to appreciate it, but there's a contradiction between the first and the second laws of thermodynamics. Uh, the first law basically states that matter can't be created or destroyed, but the second law states that everything is running down and winding down. Well, we have a problem, because there, there must have been a time when there was nothing, because everything runs down. So if it had been there forever, it would have run down by now, and it all entropy, it all burns out. There is still energy in the universe, so we know there was a time when there was a beginning, well, the Bible starts with that statement. It's a scientific fact in the beginning. But also, it couldn't have been something because things are matter, they're material, they run down, they wind down. Well, of course, the Bible starts with a, a clear statement. In the beginning, it doesn't say there was a thing. It doesn't say there was material condensed in a small dot or whatever else. It says that there was someone. Someone who's outside of creation, outside of the physical universe. Yeah, the Bible is so spot on when it comes to these details. In the beginning, God created. And how did he create? God said, let there be. And then God created all the things that we see. This is exactly what Peter's confirming to us here. But he's saying that they're going to be willingly ignorant. Now, I quite like the statement here. Um, I think it was Kent Hovind some years ago that gave us the great definition. Willingly ignorant actually means dumb on purpose. Um, they choose to reject. Uh, Chuck Misler uh, made the comment. He said, uh, it's a decision. It's not a lack of data. I like that. It's not that they have not got enough information or they haven't got enough evidence. It's simply they do not want to believe. It's exactly what Psalm 14 says. Psalm 14 verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, no God. Now the way it's translated is the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And of course that's their statement effectively. But the idea really is, imagine you've gone out for a nice meal back in the day when we could go out for meals and things like that. And you, you've had your, your food and they bring your, your sweets to the table and you're so full up you go, no, 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 no pudding, thanks. I mean, just hypothetically imagine that could happen. Um, the idea is that you're rejecting it. You're not denying the existence of it. You're saying, no pudding. I don't want it. Well, the fool has said in his heart, no God. I reject God. I don't want to countenance. I don't want to think about God. That's what the fool has said. And this is what this uh, statement of Peter's is here, that they are willingly ignorant. They choose not to believe. In spite of the evidence, in spite of the facts, in spite of where everything would take them, if they were objectively to look at the information available, they choose simply to reject. And this is what we're told. They reject that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, now speaking of the way it was in the original creation, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. So they're denying not only that Jesus would return, they're also denying the flood, that the fact that this world was cataclysmically changed by a global flood. And of course they'll, they'll laugh and they'll scoff at these things. Now, <clears throat> they refused to reject God's creator, the biblical account of our origins, and the fact that the earth was once destroyed by a global flood. <clears throat> Peter, oh, sorry, David Guzik says this, Peter's point is that things on this earth have not always continued the way they are now. The earth was different when God first created it. And then it was different again after the flood. 
Therefore no one should scoff at God's promise that he will make it different once again, judging it not with water, but with fire. The same word of God that created all matter and judged the world in the flood will one day bring a judgment of fire upon the earth. So David Guzik's just alluding to the fact that, that throughout Scripture we've got clear evidence that things have been very different. But of course they choose to reject this. Now currently what is claimed is that we have a geologic column. You'll see where I'm going with this in a second. But there is no evidence for that. The only place the geologic column exists is in school textbooks or university textbooks. It doesn't exist in the natural world. You will not find anywhere on planet Earth where you can go and observe this geologic column. Of course they'll claim therefore, because of that, that there are millions of years, that we've been here for such a long time and it's been this gradual process of evolution getting us to where we are today. Of course, that theory, the idea of millions of years, is only supported by the geologic column, for which there is no foundation anyway. That leads to the view of uniformitarianism. Now, this is the idea that everything has carried on the same, that nothing has changed. Now, Peter said that in the last days, people would come and they would make these claims. They would make these assertions that everything carries on the same. Now that, again, is brutally assaulted by the evidence to the contrary. Let me just give you a few of these things. Simple proofs that the world and the universe has not always enjoyed the peaceful kind of environment that we experience right now. Of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so that's a good indication that there are things that come, and we know there's been other um, pestilences through history that have caused all sorts of problems, some far worse than we're going through at the moment. And yet we're starting to get a glimpse that actually things aren't always the same. And we've lived in a little bubble thinking that everything's normal. Well, actually we've been in a, in a, in a quiet, a lull before the storm in a sense. Just consider, for example, the Bible speaks about the flood. We'll talk about it a bit more in a while. Uh, but of course we've got mountains. How do mountains form? Well, that's an interesting thought just there. Of course, we've got the mid-Atlantic ridge. And there's the great, that runs through, there's like a, a, a tear, I'll show you in a second, uh, but it's a tear that runs through the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in the Earth's crust. How did that happen? What caused it? There's the Great Rift Valley that runs all the way down through Israel, all the way down through Africa, one of the biggest fault lines in the Earth. There are, of course, the White Cliffs of Dover. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the White Cliffs of Dover are evidence of catastrophe. Uh, I used to live, obviously, down in Kent. I used to go there. Joy and I uh, went for walks along the cliffs a number of times when we were younger. But those cliffs are evidence of catastrophe. We are walking on the remains of dead creatures that have been deposited in one location. That doesn't happen over long periods of time. They were suddenly dumped and deposited there. The White Cliffs of Dover are a fantastic rebuttal to anybody that will try and say that we haven't had catastrophes on the Earth before. And then, of course, there's things like asteroids. Where did they all come from? Almost all uh, ancient literature also speaks of uh, the kind of catastrophes that the Bible alludes to. Uh, and of course, the Bible itself is full of these things. Let me just read you one or two things. Isaiah 24, verse 1, says this, Behold, the Lord maketh the air earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. Now, most of us would read that, and we think it's just kind of poetry. We think it's kind of... Uh, uh, you know, picture language, as some people refer to it. But what happens if this is more than just that? What happens if these are actually statements of people that had lived through and had experienced cataclysmic events? 
In fact, the more you dig into this, the more you realize that is almost certainly the case. These aren't just little uh, poetical phrases. Back in Psalm 18, we read this. And of course, it's speaking of the time of the Exodus. But when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a peculiar and strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Of course, we understand that the, the Red Sea parted. Jordan was driven back. The mountains. Now, notice the sea saw and fled. Well, they crossed over the Red Sea, but then it speaks about Jordan also being driven back. Now, of course, that's as they crossed into the land of uh, Egypt. The River Jordan went all the way back up to the city of Adam. But then, verse 4, the mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. You know, Given the context of everything else it's said so far, we know they're historical events. So when it gets to verse 4, is it suddenly speaking of just poetry? Or is this again speaking of eyewitness events of people that actually saw incredible events taking place on earth? There's all sorts of strange things we could allude to, and we won't derail too much this morning, but things like the ancient city of Troy was apparently destroyed seven times and never as a result of war. Rome, when it was built, was built upland on the river Tiber. They didn't want to build it near the sea for fear that it could be flooded. Now, it's so far inland from the actual sea that you have to question why they were that concerned. How big a tides did they get or tsunamis were they worried about getting that they built the city of Rome inland where they did? Lots of interesting historical questions we could ask. It goes on, What aileth thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest, thou Jordan, that thou was driven back? Okay, so <clears throat> there's just a number of different events in the Bible that we could lead to. There's a book written by uh, two non-Christians, but they are very sympathetic to the Christian position. But they weren't Christians, they weren't trying to prove the Bible. Uh, one individual by the name of Donald Patton and then Ronald Hatch, um, one of them worked for NASA, uh, and they were both scientists, uh, and they went through looking at what the Bible said about these catastrophes. And they recognized there was a lot of corroborating evidence to support these things. They tried to pinpoint when they think they took place. And they recognized there was a pattern to these occurring. And there's a really interesting uh, conjecture behind some of this stuff, which maybe other, some other time we could dig into. Um, but things like the long day of Joshua, where the sun stood, stood still according to scripture, scientists would scoff at that today. And yet there's really interesting evidence to suggest that, that did take place and how it actually happened. Of course, the events with Gideon and so on, Elijah on Mount Carmel, and then in Joel Amos's time, there was a big catastrophe uh, that was alluded to in Scripture. Uh, of course, the 185,000 Assyrians that died during the time of Shnechereb. Well, what was it that caused those events? Now, I know the Bible speaks of an angel on that event, but, but how, what was the mechanism that God used? How was it done? My point is, there are a lot of things we don't fully understand. Now, just to get you again, just to thinking about this, the Earth is under constant rain of interplanetary debris. Lots of things falling from space onto the Earth all the time. And we accumulate, apparently, about 100 tonnes of extraterrestrial material per day that's coming out from space, coming into the Earth's atmosphere. But most of it has little or no impact. It's so small and most of it gets burnt up, so it doesn't cause us a problem. I'm sure many of you have seen you know, meteor showers and things. I remember some years ago, Joe and I uh, were on holiday down in Dorset with Mum and Dad. We were on a campsite in Wareham Forest, and it was very dark because it was away from the pollution of light from the, the, the towns. Uh, and we were looking up, and it was, a, it was an incredible uh, meteor shower. It was going on for a couple of hours. Uh, we ended up, our necks were aching, just standing up watching these things. But, you know, every, uh, I think about you know, 20, 30 seconds, we were seeing another shooting star, as we tend to refer to them. 
You know, so we were all, we've all seen these kind of things. We're all aware of it. But as I said, most of those things don't have any significance. But, you know, every now and again, we do get a big one. That is the uh, big crater at Winslow in Arizona. It's about a mile wide. Uh, it's very clear that something large hit that particular spot and caused a bit of a problem. Uh, it's been estimated quite the force of that and how much damage it would have done worldwide and so on. There was another one in uh, Tunguska in uh, central Siberia only just over 100 years ago on the 30th of June. And it destroyed a 2,000 square kilometer area of forest. It was so remote where it was that it was not explored for another 17 years. But they reckon it was equivalent to a 15 megaton explosion going off. Uh, now, again, these are things that we we know historically uh, that they do occur. This is another picture of the, some of the devastation that was caused by uh, this boloid, as it was referred to. There was also the uh, Chicxulub crater. It was discovered in 1991. The reason it hasn't been discovered before then was because it's actually under the, the surface of the water. It's the Yucatan Peninsula, just off Central America. This is six miles in diameter, and they've estimated it has been equivalent to a 100 megaton. And they said, you know, is this what killed the dinosaurs? Well, certainly if it landed on them, it wouldn't have helped them. Um, but I think there's probably more likely that after the flood, a lot of the vegetation and the food that the dinosaurs would have eaten had gone. And I'm sure also that the Earth's atmosphere, the oxygen level have reduced, that also would have contributed significantly to uh, the health of the dinosaurs. So there's other reasons possibly for that. Um, but just to show you a picture of it, that's what it uh, looks like. You can see, if you go onto a satellite, you can just about see the shape of this under the surface. Uh, but that's kind of the area, this buried crater in the Gulf of Mexico. So these things have taken place. But, you know, could all this just occur over millions of years with the odd freak event? Well, that's what we would be told. That's what uh, our education system would try and uh, tell us. But, you know, there's compelling evidence that it didn't. If we look at uh, the solar system, we see evidence of catastrophic events everywhere. If you look at the surface of the moon, it's pitted. There's lots of things that have hit and struck the surface of the moon. Now, again, they might argue, but that was over a long period of time these things have happened. Okay, well, let's maybe concede that for a second. But we also find it on the likes of Mercury. The surface is pitted. There's lots of objects, large objects, that have hit the surface of Mercury. Uh, this was an interesting statement um, from a, um, a publication called Science in, back in 1991. Uh, it said, this photograph of a crater-covered Mercury was taken by Mariner 10. The craters were scooped out of the surface billions of years ago. And then in this question, why have they remained unchanged over all that time? Uh, well, maybe you're asking the wrong question. Maybe you're trying to uh, understand why nothing's changed because you're looking over too long a period of time. Mars is a very interesting uh, planet to observe from a biblical perspective for a number of reasons. 93% of the craters on Mars are on one side. Now, if you stop and think about that for a second, that tells you that what happened on Mars happened in a very short period of time. The planet Mars is rotating. The fact that 93% have hit the same side tells you that whatever hit Mars happened very, very abruptly. The largest crater is nine miles wide. On the opposite side, there's the largest volcano in the solar system. It's known as Olympus Mons. It's three times the height of Everest. That's just a picture of what it looks like, uh, the satellite image we've got. Uh, then there's also what's known as the Tarsis Bulge. It's like a seam that splits uh, one side of the planet. It's about 3,000 miles long. 
Uh, and it covers about 46% of the what's referred to as the serene hemisphere, the hemisphere without the craters. So get the picture. One side, you've got loads of creator, uh, craters, including the biggest one in the universe. And then you've got the other side of the planet, you've got these big bulbs as if something's gone right through the planet and causes this tear, this seam. It's the largest tear, if you like, that's observed on any planet. And you can see there uh, on that picture the scar. Uh, with our telescopes today, we can pick up these things. Um, so that's the, the, the scale of the, the, the devastation that was caused to the planet. Now, of course, the question is why? Now, there are good biblical explanations that we can put behind this. I'm not going to derail the study this morning uh, and go into that. I'm simply trying to highlight that there are indeed uh, good evidences that our universe alone has had a very uh, troubled past. But let's move on to the likes of James Hutton. Now, James Hutton uh, was born in Edinburgh in 1726. He was a Scottish geologist, uh, and he's noted for formulating the idea of uniformitarianism and also the Plutonist school of thought. Okay, he's considered by many to be the father of modern geology. Uh, by the way, he didn't like the Bible one bit. In fact, he didn't like the idea that people relied and trusted the writings of Moses. But just to give you uh, an understanding, this Plutonic theory that's referred to uh, from Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is not the best source of information in the world, but it gives you an idea of what people think. Okay, It is, it is kind of common thought. Uh, and the same is simply said, is uh, the geolog uh, geologic theory proposed by James Hutton around the turn of the 19th century, the volcanic activity was the source of rocks on the surface of the Earth. So it was putting everything down to just volcanoes. Uh, it was named for Pluto, the ancient Roman god of the underworld. Uh, this replaced Abraham Werner's Neptunism theory, which claimed that rocks had originated from a great flood and were basically sedimentary in origin. Now, it's interesting because a lot of the rocks we have are not volcanic. They're granite. Uh, and yet this theory still seemed to somehow gain traction. Um, the other uh, idea here is uniformitarianism. And uh, the definition of this is one of the most basic principles of modern geology. Now, notice what it says. The observation that fundamentally the same geological processes that operate today also operated in the distant past. It exists in contrast with catastrophism which states that the Earth's surface features originated suddenly in the past by geological processes radically different to those currently occurring, i.e. the flood and other things that the Bible speaks of. So, on one hand, you've got the biblical narrative, which for many, many centuries people adopted, accepted, and, of course, science bears out, and history uh, bears out, and you just go out and look at the world today, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a second. On the other hand, then, you've got James Hutton coming onto the scene, with this idea that actually everything's the kind of the result of volcanic activity, and there's no big catastrophes and so on. But notice the statement that is put in here. They say, uniformitarianism is one of the most basic principles of modern geology, the observation, the fundamentally the same geological process that operates today, operated in the distant past. How can you observe what happened in the distant past? It's not an observation at all. It's purely a theory. It's not an observation. This isn't fact. This isn't science. Well, Charles Lyell, another character that comes on the scene, also uh, a Scot, was born in 1797, attended Exeter College, uh, Oxford, uh, and ended in uh, 1816. Lyell encountered geology as a serious profession under the wing of the naturalist William Buckland. By 1827, he'd abandoned law 
and embarked on a long geological career that would result in the widespread acceptance of the ideas proposed by James Hutton a few decades before. So Hutton comes on the scene, comes up with these ideas, and none of these individuals had any regard for the Bible whatsoever. Lyle comes onto the scene and then starts promoting this and it becomes adopted and accepted. Lyle's book, first book, was also his most famous and most influential and probably most important from his perspective and in terms of changing the way that we think about geology, certainly the education system. Uh, it was called Principles of Geology. It was published in three volumes and it established his Lyle's credentials as an important geological theorist and introduced the doctrine of uniformitarianism, known as the doctrine of. Uh, the central argument in the principles was that the present is the key to the past. In other words, look at the world today. Look at what's going on. Well, there you go. That's our, that's our map in the sense of what's happened in the past. In other words, if it's not happening now, it didn't happen then. Well, that's a foolish notion just to, just to begin with. I mean, just a bit of logic and ration, uh, rational thinking tells you that. Lyle's interpretation of geologic change as the steady accumulation of minute changes over enormously long time spans of time was also a central theme in the principles, this is the book of the principles, and a powerful influence on none other than, of course, Charles Darwin. The young Charles Darwin, who was given volume one of the first edition uh, by Robert Fitzroy, captain of the HMS Beagle, just before they set out on the voyage of the Beagle, on their first stop ashore at St. Jango, or St. Jago, Darwin found rock formations which, seen through Lyle's eyes, gave him a revolutionary insight into the geological history of the island, an insight he applied throughout his travels. So you see how these things started to creep in. People that didn't like, wanted to try and disprove or disregard the Bible, come up with theories that weren't based in science and facts, and those things gradually got caught on, and other people then adopted them, and then we end up with the likes of Charles Darwin, and we all know what damage he did to the minds of people. Geology column mentioned this a moment ago, and this is obviously what came out of this uh, this era, this period of history. Uh, the idea that we have various rock layers and we've got various fossils buried in the various rock layers, and they all speak of various uh, eras of time through history. That's what's purported, that's what's told us in our schools. Again, as I said, it's not found anywhere in the world, in, in real life. Just a couple of quotes. This is um, from uh, Geology uh, magazine. Uh, in about 1830, Charles Lyell, Paul de Hayes, and Honoric George Braun uh, independently developed a biostratigraphic technique, or geologic column, for dating Cenozoic deposits based on relative proportions of living and extinct species of fossil mollusks. And then this is the important comment. Strangely, little effort has been made to test this assumption. This failure leaves the method vulnerable to circularity. Now, we'll explore this a little bit further, but I'll read you a few more quotes. Um, uh, a man by the name of J.E. O'Rourke in the American Journal of Science said, The intelligent layman has long suspected circular reasoning in the use of rocks to date fossils and fossils to date rocks. You see, what's done is that they'll look at a fossil that appears in a particular layer, and because they've dated that layer at a certain time, they'll tell you that that fossil is that old. But then how do they know how old that layer was? Well, they know how old the layer was because they've got a particular fossil in it. So they use one to prove the other. So it is completely circular reasoning. Uh, <clears throat> another quote by the same man says that the geologist has never bothered to think of a good reply, feeling the explanations are not worth the trouble as long as the work brings results. Uh, from uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, this is said, it cannot be denied that from a strictly philo philosophical standpoint, geologists here are arguing in a circle. 
The succession of organisms has been determined by a study of their remains embedded in the rocks, and the relative ages of the rocks are determined by the remains of organisms they contain. So again, just going round and round in circles. Now, people may say, well, what about dating methods? Can't we use dating methods to prove these things? Well, firstly, you need to understand a few things about dating methods. Carbon-14 dating, which is the one of the most popular uh, methods, only works on living or once living subjects because it measures the amount of the radioactive isotope carbon-14. Now, if it's not living, if it's a rock, you can't measure you can't use it to measure carbon-14. So it doesn't give you any help in terms of understanding how old rocks are. Uh, and by the way, carbon-14, because of the half-life, because of the decay, it can only take you back to a maximum of 50,000 years anyway. So it doesn't solve the problem. Well, then people say, well, what about radiometric dating? That's another form of, of dating things in the past. Can't we use that then to prove how old these rocks are? Well, actually, no. Um, another quote from New Scientist says this, apart from very modern examples, which are really archaeology, I can think of no cases of radioactive decay being used to date fossils. So scientists themselves acknowledge that we don't use radioactive methods to date fossils. Or radioactive decay. Uh, another quote from New Scientist, ever since William Smith at the beginning of the 19th century, fossils have been and still are the best and most accurate method of dating, I question accurate, uh, and correlating the rocks in which they occur. So in other words, they still use this idea of fossils to date the rocks. <coughs> Again, American Journal of Science, radiometric dating would not have been feasible if the geologic column had not been erected first. The rocks do date the fossils, but the fossils date the rocks more accurately. This is crazy. Uh, stratigraphy cannot avoid this kind of reasoning if it insists on using only temporal concepts, because circularity is inherent in the derivation of timescales. There's another couple of quotes. Uh, the charge of circular reasoning in stratigraphy can be handled in various ways. It can be ignored as not the proper concern of the public. In other words, you don't have any right to question it. You're not intelligent enough, so don't ask questions. Uh, or it can be denied by calling down the law of evolution, which nobody's allowed to question. Uh, it can be admitted as a common practice, or it can be avoided by pragmatic reasoning. This is scientists saying these things. All the authorities maintain, oh, sorry, uh, are the authorities maintaining, on the one hand, that evolution is documented by geology, and on the other, that geology is documented by evolution? Isn't this a circular argument? Once again, just to highlight the stupidity of the geology column, and this is what is the, the real backbone to these long periods of time, that the argument that everything is continued as it was, and so on. You, they've got so-called index fossils. So you'll find a fossil that appears in a particular layer that then dates that layer. So this is how it's used. Now, trilobites, you may have heard of, you may have seen pictures like the one on the screen there. Uh, they obviously are... are good index fossils. Okay, now trilobite typically, is the one pictured there, uh, in a rock, uh, was probably formed, they say, from somewhere between 500 to 600 million years ago, according to their theories. That's from a, um, a um, modern earth science book. All right, but there you have a picture, and I appreciate the, the resolution is probably not the best, but it's a human shoe print with a trilobite inside. Somebody stood on one of these things, and it ended up, uh, whether it was in mud and got compressed or however, but it turned into a fossil, and we now have this trilobite inside a human shoe print. Now, this, of course, is very disturbing to the geologists that would tell you that trilobites were 500 to 600 million years ago because clearly they existed at the same time of man, because there we have evidence of it, and it's been verified that wasn't a fake. 
Um, Graptolites also another um, organism. They're found uh, fossils uh, apparently for a 410 million year old rock. So you find one of these in a piece of rock, you know how old the rock is, so they say. Well, the Graptolites are still found alive in the South Pacific. Well, so how does that prove that a rock is that old? Because if they still exist today, that could have been at any time in history. Lobe-finned fish uh, are apparently used as a index fossil dating to around about 325 million years old. Uh, and yet you notice in the bottom picture on the right there um, that there's a lady swimming alongside a coelacanth, which is a lobe-finned fish. So those fish exist today. They've been found. They were thought to be extinct and probably that's why they were used in these um, um, as an index fossil. What it shows is that there really is no scientific basis for the geologic column and for the dating that they use with it. Let me go back again to the scripture. It says, "For this they are willingly, or, or they willingly are ignorant of. They've chosen not to believe." Again, they've rejected these things. Now, if there was a flood, as this verse also is implying, that is the reason that we have the catastrophes in the world as we see it today, what would the evidence be? Well, I'm going to borrow from Ken Ham, and I'm sure you're very familiar with the way he puts this, but we'd expect to find billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. And what do we find when we go out and look at the world? We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. Exactly what the Bible would imply we should find. Of course, we find marine fossils on the top of the highest mountains. We've got big deposits of shifted, uh, sorry, sifted material. There's twisted and bent rock strata, uh, deposited as silt and then hardened. And of course, evidence of mass erosion as the waters ran off the earth. And if you like mountains as well, the, the formation of mountains all go along with this. Just as an aside, I thought this was quite interesting. You've probably heard lots of things in the news about Mars recently. Um, but there's an article here that says, uh, More than 3.5 billion years ago, water flowed freely across the surface of Mars, forming lakes and seas. New research shows how these lakes may have overflowed and burst at their sides, causing flooding so severe that it carved out canyons in the Martian surface over the course of just weeks. Now, this is incredible. These are scientists saying that on Mars, where there is no current evidence of water now, that they're saying that there was once a flood that was so incredible that it carved out canyons in a matter of weeks. And they, they reject the idea that on Earth, which is over 70% made up of water, that there could have been a worldwide flood that caused all the canyons and everything else we see. Of course, we know that there are flood legends all around the world. In fact, there's over 270 flood stories uh, as you start to, to dig into various cultures. And they all bear similarity to the biblical accounts, some of them in incredible detail. And we have one of the oldest of these is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's in the British Museum. These clay tablets that were found uh, about 150 years ago or so and deciphered. Uh, and they just recount a, a bit of poetry, a story that speaks about the earth being flooded and a man being saved and his family and so on. Incredibly similar to the biblical narrative. Of course, you've got things like the Grand Canyon. And what we're told, geologists will tell us, that it was a little bit of water and an awful lot of time. Well, they're arguing on Mars that it could have happened in a short period of time. So maybe the question is, was this a lot of water and a little bit of time? As the flood waters ran off the earth, washing away all the softer material and leaving just the hard rock there. One of my uh, favorite places in this country is Cheddar. I love Cheddar Gorge. We've been there as a family a number of times and uh, we'll no doubt go back at some point. 
if the Lord tarries, we get a chance to do so. Um, but the same thing there. It's just, to me, clear evidence of the flood, that this gorge was kind of cleaned out as all the soft uh, material was washed away as the floodwaters ran off the earth, leaving this incredibly impressive uh, rock uh, formation either side of uh, the valley and below. And then, of course, you've got places like Mount Snowdon. And uh, that's actually a, a picture I took myself. Uh, I climbed up Mount Snowdon some years ago. Uh, and it's just breathtaking. You get to the top and you look down. Uh, that wasn't quite at the top as it happened. But um, I remember hearing an article or a news uh, interview with um, Alan Titchmarsh. Many of you remember Alan Titchmarsh from Ground Force um, fame some years ago. Uh, well, he'd written a book at the time. He'd been around the UK visiting various places and he commented on the fact that they'd got marine fossils on the top of Mount Snowdon. Now, this is one of the highest mountains in the, the British Isles. And they, the argument was that glaciers were responsible for pushing these fossils to the top of the mountain and leaving them there. And I, I was listening to this interview thinking, did he really just say that? The idea that a glacier, which we know moves very slowly, that's the nature of it, had actually pushed up a fossil or some organism, some creature, to the top of the mountain and just deposited it there. It, it's ridiculous that an intelligent person can make such a statement as that. And yet, these are things that are proposed. Uh, it's far more likely, these, I think you'd agree, that there was once a worldwide flood that just turned everything upside down. And of course, that would explain why we have marine fossils on the top of almost all the high mountains in the world. Another tremendous problem, excuse the pun, uh, is the fact that we've got trees upright through rock strata. Now that is a real problem for the evolutionists, because we've only got two options then for an evolutionary geologist to consider. One is that the trees stood upright for millions of years while the sediment layers formed around them. That's not possible. Or that the trees grew through hundreds of feet of solid sedimentary rock looking for sunlight, which is also not possible. In other words, it doesn't work. The only explanation to that is that those trees were deposited at exactly the same time the layers of the rock were laid down. In other words, rock layers do not indicate time. Although the geologists would try and argue this, it's very clear there's too much evidence to say this was all laid down in one go. And you know what? It's no different. If you get anything and you shake it up, any mud, dirt, whatever, put some water in it, shake it up and you let it settle, it will naturally form into layers. Of course, we've got the um, bent rock strata that we see all around the world. In various places, you go down to the what they call the Jurassic Coast, uh, borrowing an evolutionary idea uh, down in Dorset, and you'll find lots of these examples. But rock doesn't bend. Rock cracks, and yet this is bent. That tells you it was laid down when it was wet and then hardened. Okay, this isn't evidence of millions of years. This is evidence of a short time span, a short time span of it being laid down. And of course, these experts would scoff at the notion, uh, the notion of a flood being the cause, and yet it's the most logical, reasonable assumption. Now, of course, that isn't Noah's Ark. People will typically think that Noah's Ark looks something along those lines. Uh, this is a little bit more like probably what we should be thinking when we think of Noah's Ark. And of course, you'll be aware that answers in Genesis have built a life-size replica of the Ark in America. And you can go and visit this thing now. Just incredible uh, piece of work. We're just showing the scale of the biblical Ark and that it was perfectly suited for stormy seas. Uh, it was the perfect design not to capsize. There's been interesting studies done on this uh, and certainly capable of carrying all the life that Noah was encouraged or told to, to get onto the Ark. And of course, God brought the animals as well. So... Okay, let's move on. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the judgment 
and the perdition of ungodly men. So God is saying that we have a world that has rejected him. It's turned its back on the truth, doesn't want to know the truth. And it's saying that the, the world that now exists, which everybody thinks is going to go on, is not going to go on because God has got a day and a time when everything is going to be judged. This world is going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned up by fire. It says against the day of judgment. And notice it's not just the world, but the perdition of ungodly men. Those that reject the truth, that choose to believe these nonsensical ideas that are presented to children as science, those individuals are going to be judged. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. The one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter now kind of answering his own points that he's made, that they, they reject the fact that we believe Jesus is coming back, because they say, well, you know, there's been such a long pe- period of time and nothing's happened, therefore it won't. But Peter says, hey, well, you've got to remember that God is outside of time. God is not bound by your chronology, by your clocks. Some, by the way, have tried to use this verse to suggest that the days of creation were long periods of time. Well, that doesn't work because of Exodus 20.11, which tells us that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh, including the, the whole the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So it doesn't work from a biblical perspective. Um, but the book of Genesis gives us our definition of day. The word yom is used in Genesis. Without that definition of what a day is, as a literal 24-hour period of time, then none of these other statements would make any sense anyway. So it's not implying long periods of time in creation. It's simply saying that God is outside of time. You know, to us, a thousand years seems a long time, but to God, it's just like a day. Because God is not bound by time. God is not in, uh, restricted by time. We are where we are. We can't go back in the past. We can't go forward into the future. We live in the present. <clears throat> in Psalm 90 verse 4 it says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. See, God is not bound by the restrictions of time as we are. Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. You know, God dwells in eternity he's not in time adam clark in his commentary said all time is as nothing before him because in the presence as in the nature of god all is eternity therefore nothing is long nothing short before him no lapse of ages impairs his purposes you know we may sometimes think that god is delaying coming back but in in god's economy god is outside of time there is no late in that sense god is never late uh, God is always on time because it's his time that he's working to. But just an interesting aside based on the verse we just read in Peter. In Hosea chapter 5 and going into chapter 6, we read this statement. It's God speaking. I will go and return to my place. Now that's an interesting statement. For, for God to return to his place, he must have left it. Until they, speaking of Israel, acknowledge their offense. So God is saying, I'm going to return to my place until Israel acknowledge their sin, their offense, and seek my face. Now, we know enough in Scripture to know that the point in the future when Israel will seek God's face will be just prior to the second coming. When Zechariah tells us they will look upon me whom they've pierced and mourn, and so on. And it says, in their affliction, they will seek me early, or more accurately, earnestly. Well, again, we know from Scripture that just before the second coming, the Jews will be about to perish. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah, uh, as we were looking at our study in Isaiah uh, a couple of weeks ago, that at the time of the second coming, he will gather together the Jews from the four corners of the earth, or the four cardinal points, north, south, east, and west. He'll bring them back to the land. Those who were about to perish, we're told in Isaiah. So we know this statement is true prophetically 
And then verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 says, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn us, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. And verse 2 is a really interesting one. After two days, okay, now this is the interesting bit, will he revive us? And in the third day, will he raise us up, and we shall live in his sight? Now, the question is, are they talking about literal days? Well, the context gives us our answer, because it says, in the third day, that they, the Jews, the children of Israel, are going to live in his sight. How long will the Jews, the children of Israel, live in the sight of Jesus when he returns and establishes his kingdom? Well, we know it's going to be a period of a thousand years. Right, so a little bit of deduction here. Israel have been smitten and bound for the last 2,000 years. We know that historically. Israel are going to live in his sight during the millennium, which will be a period of a thousand years. Hosea likens this thousand years, the period where they live in his sight, to a day. The third day is in his reckoning. So, if the third day equals a thousand years, the first two days must also equal a thousand years by the same uh, reasoning. So, if the last two thousand years are analogous to a day, and the millennium is likewise, if it's perfectly with the creation model that God created in six days and rested on the seventh, that we've had six thousand years almost of human history, and the seventh thousand year will be a period of rest. Okay, so it's an incredible picture. Isaiah seems to allude to this as well. Uh, I just share it with you because with the, the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. Now, this isn't given as a mathematical formula. You don't need to make doctrine of this, but it's certainly very interesting. <coughs> okay. Let's just uh, round out the chapter. So we're told that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to, to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, God wants all to be saved. And of course, that rebuts the, the doctrine of limited atonement. You may have heard that, typically a Calvinistic position, uh, the idea that Jesus only died to save a certain few. That's not what this verse tells us very clearly, uh, that God wants all to be saved. In fact, Ezekiel 33.11 says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And 1 John 2 verse 1 speaks about Jesus being the propitiation or the payment in full for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the whole world. And then we're told that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burnt up. This great noise, by the way, in Greek, uh, is a Big Bang, basically. So I do believe in the Big Bang theory, but it just hasn't happened yet, according to Peter. He says that every atom is going to be loosed. That's the uh, the Greek here. <clears throat> of course, Jesus, you know, in Colossians, is the one that's holding all things together. And at some point, Jesus is going to allow everything to fly apart, down to the atomic level. You know, even today, scientists don't understand what holds an atom together. Um, I'm sure you're familiar <clears throat> from school that with an atom, uh, you have in the center of the atom, you have the protons and you have the neutrons. You have a positive charge and a negative charge. Uh, and, and it should, uh, also the electrons, sorry, flung around the outside, uh, and it should just fly apart. You, you, the, the like charges should repel. You, you see it with magnets, you put them together, they push apart. It should happen with an atom, but it doesn't. And they've come up with all sorts of theories like atomic glue, which is just simply a way of saying they don't know, uh, and other things. But there's no scientific understanding as to why an atom doesn't fly apart. Well, by, the Bible says that Jesus is holding it all together. But there's going to come a time he's going to let it all literally fly apart. Every single piece of fabric material in the universe will literally be dissolved. <clears throat> Just to give you an idea of the, the layout of these things, 
We have, of course, the second coming, when Jesus returns with his bride to the earth, and Jesus will then set up his throne and rule in Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years. Satan's bound during that time and then released at the end of it. But that then leads on to this period where we find the the great white throne judgment. God will judge uh, every uh, individual. All those that have uh, gone to, to hell, to Hades, they'll be brought up and they'll stand before God. They'll have to give an account of their works. Uh, and then this earth, as we've got that verse there, heavens and earth will pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. And by the way, Peter uses that expression, fervent heat, twice, just trying to get this across to us. But then that will also lead on to this great white throne judgment. Revelation 20.11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose faith the face of the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And this then will ultimately lead on to uh, this judgment where uh, individuals are judged, those whose names are not found, in written in the book of life, are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And then those who are righteous, those who are saved, uh, will then go and inherit the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And uh, we're going to look at that in a little bit of detail next week. Jesus says, verse, 20, uh, verse 5 of Revelation 21, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Literally, these words are dependable. Of course, Revelation 21.3 reminds us that the tabernacle, the dwelling of God, is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So Peter asked the question, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? And effectively answers the question, in all holy conversation and godliness. That's how we should be. Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God. Now there are scholars that are divided on this. They think, is that simply saying we should be looking and waiting? Or is it saying that by our godly lifestyle we can bring forward the return of the Lord? And there's good scholars that will argue both sides of that. And I'll let you make your own minds up. Wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved. And here we go again. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. Again, the fact that we are looking for his coming will change our hearts and minds and reset our priorities. If we're not looking for his coming, well, then they're not going to be uh, changed. You know, we are to be godlike is uh, what we are told. And Peter's really hammered this point as we've gone through. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And as I said, next week I want to build on this and have a little study, just a topical study, looking at uh, our eternal dwelling. Hopefully it'll be uh, encouraging. So wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent. Once again, Peter uses that expression, that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. You know, we're to be washed with the water of the word, that we are without spot, without any wrinkle, and that we're ready for our Saviour's return. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. You know, God has waited, but praise God that he did, because if God had come back five years ago, if Jesus had returned five years ago, maybe some of you wouldn't have been saved. You know, if it had been 30, 40 years ago, maybe a lot of us wouldn't have been saved at that point. But God is gracious and God is waiting. The longer the Lord leaves it, the more people are being saved. And we need to use every opportunity to witness. And then Peter says, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which some things are hard to be understood, and many commentators think that's an allusion to Paul's writings in the book of Hebrews, which some things are 
difficult to understand. It's admittedly, we studied the Hebrews a little while back. Uh, Peter but alluding to, to that, certainly. Uh, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they uh, do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Notice what Peter says. He classes Paul's writing as scripture. He recognized that this wasn't just man's work. This was inspired of God. Uh, you therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also being led away with the error of the wicked. Remember what we looked at last week about Balaam, about the lusts of the flesh, lusting after worldly things, looking for material gain, looking for the things of this life. Those are the, the errors of the wicked. And, and they're so easy that those things can lead us away. And in Hebrews, of course, it speaks about the sin which so easily ensnares. And so, again, also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Not from salvation. You can't fall from salvation. But you can fall from that steadfastness. And you can do yourself irreparable spiritual harm. And you lose out on benefits and blessings and rewards as a result of not keeping your eyes on Jesus. And then this great verse, and we often quote this and we often pray in our prayers, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. It's speaking about growing in this grace and knowledge uh, that's, that's from him. Okay, that, that We are to go to the Lord and he's to give us this knowledge and, and of course the grace comes from him alone. This is to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. As I said, next week we're going to build on this and look at just a one-off topical study, just looking at the new heavens and the new earth, which really, as we'll read, we'll springboard from a verse in Colossians. Uh, it's the inheritance of the saints is what we've got to look forward to. Okay, let's bow our hearts and let's just pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to be able to study these things. Father, we recognize we live in a world that is full of scoffers that reject your word. And yet, Lord, we have an abundant evidence to convince us and to convict us Lord, to show us from an intellectual perspective, and yet, Lord, your spirit, your word also, Lord, cuts right down to the to the heart, Lord, to the soul of our being, Lord, and tells us that there is a God who created us, who did judge the world before through a flood, and will judge the world again through fire. Oh, Lord, we thank you this morning that we know that you are our Lord and our Savior. We pray, Father, for those that do not yet know you, that, Lord, you would open their eyes in the days that remain. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.